Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm going to begin with a true story. Uh, that occurred several years ago in an airplane that was filled with passengers. It left from Tel Aviv for Heathrow Airport in England, and half of the passengers were Jews, and half of the passengers were Christians, and both groups were returning from a pilgrimage in the Holy Land, Uh, with the exception of three passengers, a mother, a father, and a young daughter. She was only four years old, and her name was Miriam Kadosh. And Miriam's liver was not working properly, and the doctors in Israel sent her to England for a liver transplant. Her parents had absolutely no money and no idea how they would ever afford the operation. Well, the mother of Miriam was having a conversation with her neighbor in the plane about uh, her daughter's condition, and then the mother, exhausted because of care of her daughter, went to sleep. While she was sleeping, word about Miriam's condition spread to everybody on the plane. And there were no announcements, there was no planning, but at some point, someone spontaneously began to pass the hat. And when the plane landed at Heathrow Airport, Marin's mother had in her purse $73,000 in cash and in checks with pledges for a lot more. There was no telethon, no campaign, no committee meetings. It just happened. The people aboard that plane had encountered God. The Jews remembered their divine liberation from slavery in Egypt, and and the Christians remembered their risen Lord. And the result was a spontaneous and generous extravagance. And I'd like to talk about generosity today. It's our in-gathering Sunday, and we're thinking about money and the spirituality of money and how that all works. And, and we're filling out pledge cards and offering a portion of our income to the church and thinking about our priorities and all of these rather heavy subjects. But I want to I go to the, the current that's underneath all of those conversations, and that current has to do with generosity of the heart because Jesus was never impressed with money. He wasn't impressed with showmanship. He wasn't impressed with a spectacle. He was fixated on the condition of the human heart that produced what we would call good works or good deeds or generosity. So I want to talk about our uh, cardiovascular system today, our spiritual cardiovascular system. And I want to talk about generosity from the perspective of human accounting and generosity from the perspective of heaven's accounting. And Luke chapter 21, in some ways, offers us both visions, the the vision of human accounting and heavenly accounting when it comes to the subject of generosity. So let's consider now uh, human accounting. I invite you to read the text along with me, this little passage, this beautiful small gem from Luke chapter 21. This is human accounting. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Stop there. 
So what is Jesus doing? He's people watching. Why is he doing that? Probably because he's exhausted. He has spent now several, uh, several hours, really days in the temple teaching about a variety of things, but many of his subjects have to do with money or he's using money as a metaphor to address core spiritual dynamics that were occurring at the temple. And more than that, he just chased out a bunch of scam artists who were making a living from ripping people off in the temple and in, in a money exchange, right? So he cast them all out of the temple with a bullwhip, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. So, but now he's tired and he's people watching and, uh, and he's seeing a scene that is riddled with resplendent wealth. Uh, from a human perspective, the setting is financially impressive. You have a rich setting. It's the temple, right? The temple constructed by Herod the Great, so-called. I mean, and Herod once uttered these words, if you want a lasting legacy, carve it into stone. And he did that. He built all sorts of things. Uh, he built... Uh, uh, massive harbors for Israel. He also built pagan temples and he also built the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, and it was a massive endeavor, the temple in which Jesus is sitting. Uh, Herod noticed that the temple that was constructed in about 450 BC was rather shabby. So he had it bulldozed and decided to, to quote the prayer of Jabez, expand his territory. Uh, and so he took the mountain and made a plateau out of it. He literally made a plateau out of a mountain, cut the top of it off. Uh, the size was about 24 football fields, right? Massive, massive uh place on which to construct the temple mount. And there he constructed the largest temple in the Roman Empire. It took 90 years to build. And the rabbis were so impressed with its beauty after it was constructed that they regarded it and called it the Shekinah of Yahweh or the glory of God. Why? Because it shone like the sun. It was, um, it was not only made of very impressive stones, Herod had imported um, endless amounts of white marble uh, to decorate the temple, all from Greece, and 10 tons, 10 tons of gold from Egypt to decorate it. And so it shone like the sun for everyone but Christ. Jesus wasn't impressed with the structure at all and regarded it with no small measure of derision. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, that is in the verses that immediately follow our passage his disciples were remarking about the temple. The text says that they, they talked about how it was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said to them, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And in other words, the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen, this example of opulence, which is supposedly dedicated to God, Give it 40 years and it's gone. It'll never be seen again. The Romans will obliterate it. And they did. But for now, it's a rich setting. And in this rich setting, Jesus is spying out a rich ritual that many people are participating in. So how the temple survived in terms of uh, its financial viability was through the donations of visitors. They would go into the temple, this center of Jewish religious life, and they would make donations and do so publicly. Now, that's not often how we do it in church. We sort of do it now 
in our setting because of COVID, where we have an offering plate in the back, but typically we pass the plate and you don't know who's putting things in or who isn't. But in, in some churches, even to this day, during offering time, everybody marches forward and puts things in the offering plate. Now, at Monique's home church, uh, which was a mega, mega church. She went to a massive church where whenever the minister was giving a particularly compelling sermon, you always knew it because people would literally get up from their seats and take checks and lay them at the pastor's feet. And some of them were for him. Now, I notice that none of you, not a one, have ever done that for me. What gives? Uh, we need to rethink this Anglicanism thing. Maybe Pentecostalism in the end is the way to go. Um, nevertheless, uh, uh, that was how things were done. Public giving. And in Jesus' day, it wasn't dissimilar. In the court of the women, which is where all giving was done, they had 13 brass-looking uh, boxes or implements. They actually looked like trumpets into which people would place uh, coins. Not paper money, because they didn't have that, but coins. And so not only could you see what people were giving, you could hear it. And so the offering uh, uh, was very, very apparent, particularly the size of the offering. You could see and hear generosity. And so we have a rich ritual within this rich setting. And then you have a rich congregation, a rich congregation, because this is uh, mentioned here in the text that Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into these uh, brass trumpets. And uh, what's, what's fascinating, too, is that, um, is that in this passage, in right around our text, in the latter portion, portion of Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is very nervous about what he's seeing, particularly as it relates to widows, all this sort of liturgy and all this finery. He's nervous about it. And this is what he says. Beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. Nobody look at my garments right now. And love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Remember, call me the reverend. And have the most important seats in the synagogue in the places of honor at banquets. Now notice verse 47. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So they're critiqued for their life of luxury. The flowing robes isn't necessarily just a liturgical comment. It means that they live a life of luxury. They don't work in the mill, you know? They don't have calluses on their hands. They take it easy. They're like Joseph, given his, you know, Tom Ford suit, right? Or his coat of many colors. They're not working hard. And what they do is they take advantage of people that are barely eking out an existence. And what does it say about their treatment of widows? They eat their houses. What a strange image. They consume shelters. That is, they take away things that are necessities uh, from those who are in dire straits. Now, what does that mean? It probably means something like this. They rip off people in need like widows because they're, they're either putting um, feathers in their own cap or lining their own mattresses or they're, um, or they're taking money for the church away from people who really need it. Jesus critiqued this too when it came to how uh, children regarded their parents. Like that if your parents are in need, but you say, sorry, mom and dad, I can't give you any money because I'm giving it to Jesus or I'm giving it to the church. Jesus wasn't thrilled with that. He said, no, 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 you have a familial responsibility first to really take care of your parents and not just falsely say out of a false piety that you're giving it to God. Well, 
here we have a rich congregation of people who are gathering and putting in offerings, and some of these are teachers of the law, and they're the people who take advantage of the poor and eat their homes. And so the temple becomes, at least for Jesus at this time, a haven for predators who prey on the weak. And this widow is such a contrast to her setting, this opulent, wealthy setting filled with a wealthy rituals and wealthy people. She is vulnerable because, at least in that day, most widows didn't work and relied only upon what their husbands had saved during their working years and during their lifetime. And so the widow was not usually able to provide much for themselves, let alone make a, a stunningly uh, impressive contribution to the life of the worshiping community. Societally speaking, widows were either unseen or used. And so what is a widow from a budgetary perspective? From a human accounting perspective, not much, very little, if anything. Uh, and sometimes people were captivated by this understanding. In other words, they didn't see people as bearers of the eternal image, but instead only saw them as a means of contribution and you know, to minimize their humanity. And sometimes during this COVID season, we've done that, right? We've either thought of people as disease carriers or non-disease carriers, as if that summarized the totality of somebody's humanity. Um, but more than that, the church uh, for a time, especially during the 90s, that great uh, decade of human flourishing um, and, and ecclesiastical sophistication, decided to stop calling people parishioners, at least in some circles, and called them giving units, Giving units, yeah. And so people talked about the uh, the significant giving units of their parish. Well, isn't it beautiful to have a Messiah that sees with unstained retinas? He doesn't he doesn't see you how other people see you, and he's not as interested in your checkbook, and he doesn't he's not fascinated by your retirement or your stocks. Instead, he sees right into the heart that he doesn't see you as other people see you. And I love a Jesus who sees. And this is what he's doing. He's people watching. And he sees the rich, but his focus, his focus is upon the woman that no one would have noticed. And the woman who barely gave anything and who didn't make a large sound in a brass trumpet. This woman. Uh, he was fixated on this woman. And, and through his eyes, we... We see heaven's accounting, which is different than human accounting. This is what it says in verse 3. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now notice that Jesus is arithmetically errant. He's wrong. She did not put in more than anybody else. In fact, she probably put in the least that day from an arithmetic perspective. People put in much, much more than her. But Jesus saw a fortune. Jesus saw Atlantis in these two coins. Jesus saw, um, you know, the millions and billions in these two small copper coins because he had a different way of seeing, a different way of perceiving. Um, and, and this woman who didn't give enough money to buy a cup of coffee at a gas station, let alone a Starbucks, said that nothing in the world will be the same because of her, because I'm using her as a universal principle. 
I'm seeing what she's done and I'm calling my disciples over to me and I'm going to tell you something about the nature of giving and generosity um, from this woman. And so thank God for her and thank God for her little action that day because she's still reaching us in this very um, contemporary moment. Um, And this is Jesus's point. She's amazing, not because two pennies is going to buy very much, but she's amazing because she gave everything she had to live on, and they didn't. They gave 2% of their $60 billion, and it won't affect them very much. But but um, she gave everything. You know, these other people, they didn't miss a meal because of what they gave. You know, they still went out to Perkins for breakfast, and they wouldn't have done that someplace fancier, right? But they, you know, they still ordered eggs Benedict. They, they did all right. Without the ham, yeah. Um, that was funny, what I just said. No ham. They were kosher. Um, but she gave everything. What's interesting is the Greek word for everything there is bios, from which we get biology. What does this mean? She gave her world. She gave her world. She gave everything she had to live on. And I want you to think about that. She gave her sustaining power away. Why would she do that? Is she an idiot? I mean, is she just foolish? Is she unwise? I mean, some people would think so. I mean, you have to be fiscally responsible after all. Well, no, here's, here's, I think, what she was like. She was a woman who knew her need, and she had survived many, many years as a person in need. She had survived as a widow. And she somehow, in her experience, understood that God would meet her needs. And she was still alive because of God. And so that day, she could take her welfare check and give it away. She could give the money away because she trusted in the generosity of heaven. And then heaven wouldn't forget her. Why would she think that, by the way? Well, because there's, there are examples of it in the Bible, like in the Old Testament. You may remember the story of, the, uh, of Elijah, the prophet, and he visited with this widow who had a kid, and the kid was, you know, it was an issue, and he was troubled, uh, and he ran into some difficulties. But, but the widow um, was facing, along with the rest of the community, a great drought, and they didn't have food. And she had like a little bit of flour to make a waffle. And so she's told Elijah, I have a little flour and I'm making a waffle. That's my translation for my kid and for me. So we're going to have, this is our last meal before our death sentence. So we're going to eat and then we're going to die. And Elijah said, how about you give it to me? I want the waffle. And the woman said, well, I guess you're from God. Okay. And then a miracle happened, right? She never ran out of flour and she never ran out of oil. Because she found every time that she went to the cupboard, her cupboard was miraculously full. And that story says that God cares about the people nobody cares about. And God sees the people that are unseen. And God sees the guy with Tourette's at the, at the bus depot. And God sees the, um, the, the woman with Alzheimer's. And, and God sees the people that are you know, dying um, because their AIDS meds no longer work anymore. And God cares about all of the people that are difficult and petulant, and God cares about the, the, the young woman with borderline disorder, you know, like all those people that we would rather kind of shove away to the margins because we don't know what to say or to do. Jesus always sees them. And Jesus in this case is seeing this woman who was so weak and so bankrupt uh, from a human accounting perspective, and yet 
she fell in love with God and she knew God was her source and God had a track record of taking care of poor people. And so she wanted to give her a welfare check away and she did, right? And notice that Jesus loves what she does. Jesus uh, accounted this gift as wild, as impractical, and as extravagant, and he loved those qualities in people. Sometimes we think that Jesus only likes really prudent people, very cautious people, who, who always balance their checkbooks, even though you can do online banking. You can do that now. You don't need to balance your checkbooks anymore. Huntington will take care of it for you. It's amazing. I'm just telling you. Um, but Jesus loved people that were not always prudent. He loved outlandishness. You remember the stories. The lady that took the $30,000 bottle of perfume and broke it on the floor and then started dumping it on his body. He loved that lady. And the lady, the other lady that came to him in the middle of a Pharisee dinner, you know, fancy dinner party with the six dinner forks. And she, uh, she started bawling her eyes out on his feet and then wiped them, this intimate act, wiped them with her hair. He loved that. And the, remember the punks who did the breaking and entering because their friend was a quadriplegic? Do you remember that story? Yeah, they crawled up on this poor guy's roof, started tearing it apart, and then dropped the, the, the quadriplegic down through the hole, and then Jesus saw their faith and healed. He loved that kind of thing, this daring audacious love. You remember the Syrophoenician woman who screams at Jesus because Jesus is ignoring her and, and she says, my daughter is, she's deeply troubled. I need you to help her. And Jesus says, no. And she says, I'm essentially not going to like let you go. And he says, look, I only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't come to give you know, food to the dogs. And she's, that's fine. You can call me a dog. I'm cool with that. And all, but dogs get to eat garbage. Just give me your garbage. And I know that's enough for me. And Jesus was so impressed that he, he healed the daughter. You know, he loves that kind of audacious, daring, reckless love. And I think he loved it because it's what motivated him. We don't have a stingy Jesus, you know, who like looks at you with squinted eyes, always like seeing your mistake. There she goes again. You know, how much, how many good things have I given her? And yet she still can't give her life together. That's what you think of yourself. That's not what he thinks of you. Instead, Jesus has this like ridiculously generous heart that, that propels him to give his life away. He doesn't love you with like careful caution. He loves you with extravagance. Um, and that's why he inspires us um, to live out of that image. He's the one in whose image you were made, and you were made to have an extravagant heart, a generous heart, a heart that was not always prudent, one that was modeled after the cardiology of Christ. And so heaven's accounting utilizes the chart of the heart, more than graphs and the, the things that we create, the chart of the heart, so that one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing in terms of our generosity. Now, I want you to know Jesus is, of course, not dissing planned giving or percentages, but he's trying to show us something beneath all that. What really matters is a heart that is freed up, freed up to love God and love people with greater generosity. Um, now, so that's our story, human accounting and heaven's accounting. And let me tell you, I've read a lot of commentaries about this passage, and some of the applications are rather unhelpful, and I think some are more helpful. Let me give you the unhelpful one first, because I think it's funny. Okay, here's the unhelpful application that you don't need to worry about. You should think about this passage um, by applying human accounting to heaven's design. What do I mean by that? 
the reasoning goes something like this. Jesus wants you to be a widow. In other words, Jesus liked the widow lady because she gave the entirety of her welfare check to the church. She gave everything. Are you giving everything? So in order to make heaven happier uh, with us, we need to give more and more and more of our stuff away, striving to give away everything eventually to the church. And if we don't, then we should experience a lifelong crushing guilt that we're not doing enough and we likely never will. Uh, The only way out of that crushing guilt is to eventually become a modern St. Francis of Assisi. Functionally, what does that mean? That you only bargain shop at Salvation Army. You use a generic soap that dries out your skin. You eat only Hydrox cookies and only at Christmas time. And you ride a rusty bike instead of driving a car. And you cut your own hair using a bowl Um, (laughs) or a Bic razor. Um, The lesson, um, you can only serve God if you're broke and miserable. And God loves us more if we're more miserable. Uh, God wants to make us all widows so he can finally, at long last, find us lovable. That's probably not the most helpful understanding of this passage. Here's a better one. When it comes to heaven's accounting, it's not about amounts or percentages. I hate to tell you this, but the New Testament has no set standard of Christian giving. Uh, when it comes to tithing in the Bible, tithing is a very complex subject because in the Old Testament there were probably three tithes totaling probably 33 to 34% of one's income, and it went to the temple and the Levitical priesthood. We have neither a temple nor the Levitical priesthood anymore, and the New Testament doesn't command tithing, and none of the reformers taught it as mandatory. And in fact, the Reformed communion said that it was a spurious practice that ought not to be communicated in the church. So here's the thing. Just from my perspective to yours, I don't care about percentages. You can use whatever you want. I know some people think that's risky for a rector to say. I don't care. I trust you. I trust the spirit of God within you. I trust your generosity because you've always been generous with us. If tithing is a good rule of thumb for you, fantastic. Some people can't give as much as 10%, and some people can give a lot more. It's fine. Just figure it out. Um, But the truth is, uh, the only way... Um, that we're that we're kind of in line with the New Testament geists or spirit in terms of giving is to have heaven's accounting reckon in our hearts to change our emotions, to change what we feel about money, what we desire. And that's one of the messages of the New Testament in God's sanctifying work. What he wants to do is heal how you feel, heal your emotions and through that heal your actions. Um to develop within us the cardiology of Christ, which will birth in us a, a generous nature, not just in our money, but in our how we think about people, how we feel about conflict, how we engage with strangers, and, and yes, how we use money. And we have this wonderful opportunity in our little temple here, in our place at Grace Anglican, uh, to mimic a Christ who gave his all, and in doing so, change the world. Um, And so that's what Jesus wants. He actually does want your all, but that begins in your heart. It begins with owning your spirit, your sense of generosity, and infusing it with life and freedom so that we're not always panicky and worried about money, but can give things away more easily. Um, And so when it comes to, to giving it grace, that's what I would love to see. All of us freed up more and more to not worry as much and to be more free with our generosity. And I've already seen that in you. And here's how I know it. During this COVID season where so many of our people have struggled, and many of us have, uh, so many of you, more than I can count, have sent checks to my discretionary fund to help people who are in need. I've, we've cut many checks 
out to families and individuals who have struggled because of lack of work. We, we helped Christmas to happen for some people because of you. I never beat you over the head saying, please, please, please give to my discretionary account. You just did it. And because of that, you've lifted lives in our parish and outside our parish because of your generosity, because of the spirit working within you. Here's what's hard for me as a preacher. I can't exhort you into generosity. I can't just say, be generous, and you will. If it were that easy, let me tell you, oh my gosh, that's all I should ever do in a sermon. I'll just tell you to be better all the time, and you would, and we it would work out really well. It's just the human condition's more complicated than that, right? So I can't just tell you what to do or how to think or how to feel. What I can do as your preacher is give you the gospel. I can give you the gospel week after week and trust that the Holy Spirit will take the gospel of heaven's outlandish, reckless, some would even say wasteful generosity and preach that to you and say that you have been made the recipient of that. And I'll trust that will do the work. I trust that will do the work always because our salvation, friends, was not achieved by stinginess and scrutiny. Instead, it was secured by an outlandishly generous Christ. This is what John Hooper, the great English reformer bishop, said. I confess that Christ's condemnation is my absolution, that his crucifying is my deliverance, his descending into hell is my ascending into heaven, his death is my life, his blood is my purity. It's all gift from first to last. So let that sink into your heart and see what it does. Because in the end, we are all Marin Kadosh, you know. We are all this little girl, this bankrupt kid with a broken liver. But somebody, thank God, somebody with scarred flesh passed the hat. And he gave us generous forgiveness and an everlasting inheritance. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your